<clears throat> I came across a very interesting and thought-provoking quote <clears throat> excuse me, this week, and here is the quote. You might want to write it down. It's not in your notes. I should have included it, but I didn't. The quote is by, <clears throat> I believe it's a Finnish pastor, and he wrote this. Helplessness united to faith produces prayer. Helplessness united to faith produces prayer. That has really gotten my attention this week. As you know, we've been talking about prayer, been encouraging us as a church to be praying. And I am more convinced now that my inabilities, my weaknesses, and my inadequacies draw me to keep seeking from God His help. When I see my situation accurately, <clears throat> then I am in desperately realizing I'm in need from God. I need His grace. I need His strength. I need His wisdom. I need His joy, His peace, His forgiveness. Every day, throughout the day, I am a needy person. And that draws me to pray and seek God. To come with my empty hands. To seek Him and ask for His divine, gracious power and enablement to be working in me. Because left to myself, I am weak and unable. What a contrast to the thinking pattern that is so popular in our society today. Much of our modern psychology is aimed at elevating one's self-confidence. Feel good about yourself and your abilities. The prevailing child development philosophy is built around the goal of improving a child's self-esteem. Children are encouraged to place their faith in themselves. They are encouraged to feel good about themselves. But what a contrast to some of the warnings of Scripture. The warnings of Scripture tell us that one of the greatest problems that we all have by nature of our fallen nature is that we think too highly of ourselves. We have an elevated view of ourselves. And the Bible warns again and again, beware of pride, beware of the haughty spirit. And scriptures urge the children of God to admit that we are spiritually poor, that we're in desperate need every day, and we're encouraged to come frequently and freely to God to find help in the times of need we have. The scriptures call us to highly esteem God. That's the one we're to have high esteem for, and therefore not have high esteem in our own abilities and our own value. We want to esteem God more than anything. And that would help, I think, correct some of the imbalance of what our society is giving us today. Well, let me encourage you to turn in your Bible this morning to Matthew chapter 7, page 1148 in your pew Bible. Matthew chapter 7, <clears throat> page 1148. And we're going to look at a couple of fundamental principles about prayer as we conclude our prayer week that Jesus offered in his Sermon on the Mount. His comments very interestingly come as a, uh, to refute some of the teaching of the false teachers of his day. These wolves in sheep's clothing had used prayer as a means of elevating their own sense of importance 
to try to gain the respect of other people around them. And so they're using prayer as a means of trying to have people be impressed with them and how holy and pious and godly they must be. And so they prayed, according to the scriptures here in Matthew 6, that they're not praying out of a humble sense of their need or reliance upon God. They were praying to be seen by men. They were praying to be noticed by other people. That's why they were standing out in the middle of the public square and looking, hoping that people would notice them. And so Jesus exposes that fraud of their empty prayers. And now in chapter 7, he adds to what he's already done to correct some of the, that wrong teaching and, and practice. And he gives a new perspective on prayer in Matthew 7, verse 7. And there we read, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, He will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? I want to point out to you that in verses 7 and 8, it's hard to bring it over from the translation in the original language, but the verbs that Jesus uses there in asking and seeking and knocking They are in the present tense. And so it's better to understand what he's saying there is, keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking, keep on knocking. That is the really, that's the way his audience would have heard what he just said. And Jesus instructs his followers to pursue God in prayer. Continual prayer and persistent prayer. He doesn't call us just to pray occasionally or once or even for a week only it's a persistent pursuit of god in prayer pursuing god's help and his assistance is really to be a habit of those who are disciples of christ it's an abiding attitude of the heart ongoing all of us have moment by moment need for god and in this life we will never attain to a self-sufficient condition We are always and ever in need of Christ. We need His help. We need His hope. We need His power. We need His grace. We need His love. We need Christ every moment. And therefore, Jesus is saying to seek God and to keep asking Him is an appropriate attitude of the follower of Christ. Now, I'm aware that some of us may know these truths. It's easy to say, okay, I got that. I got that in my head. I understand that concept. That's clear. But if we really get down to the nitty-gritty of our everyday experience, where the rubber meets the road, as they say, and the pattern of life, we realize that our hearts oftentimes are revealed in the fact that we don't pray as a regular habit. We become aware that we need the gospel truths to help us overcome our natural reticence to persistently and continually pursue God in prayer. And so Jesus offers several incentives in this text of Scripture, several motivators. Again, I'd like to use that as the, as the key concept here. He's motivating us to be those who will develop a life of ongoing and continuous reliance upon His grace and His goodness. 
So let's look first of all then at the first incentive, the first motivator is this. Number one, gospel promises. Gospel promises sustain ongoing requests of God. Jesus directs his disciples to see that the privileges of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, is you'll notice verse 8, he promises that everyone who keeps on asking, everyone who keeps on seeking, everyone who keeps on knocking, they will have their prayers answered. That's a wonderful promise. The promise is made to those who are adopted as children of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice he says in verse 11, he talks about your father. We're not talking about the fatherhood of God to all mankind. We're talking about being in relationship with God that is built on understanding in the scriptures that God is our father and becomes our father and not our judge and not the one who is going to condemn us, but the one who tenderly loves us through Jesus Christ and the gospel of what he's done for us on the cross and his resurrection. So the scriptures provide an abundance of assurances that God's people expect him to hear their cries for help. Here are some helpful verses I find that have encouraged me in my pursuit of God over the years, albeit in a very feeble way. Jeremiah 33, call to me, God says, call to me and I will answer you. I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. And then there is Jeremiah 29, verse 14. You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart, God says. And then Psalm chapter 4, verse 2 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. There are many, many, I'm just giving you a very brief sampling of many promises of God saying, I'm going to answer the prayers of those who seek him in truth. And so let me just back up and say, having acknowledged there are many promises, we have to be careful we understand that these assurances in the Bible are not blank checks in the sense of Jesus is not teaching that prayer can be made into some sort of formula by which you say certain things and you create a reality based on this fact that you can speak certain things in prayer and therefore you know they're going to come to pass. I would caution you, there are many who are false teachers who talk about the word of faith movement. And they would claim that the human tongue, the human speech contains a supernatural ability or power that when a person speaks they claim they express their faith and supposedly according to certain kind of divine laws that they claim are true which they're not but they claim these are true that those kind of positive verbal expressions allegedly produce some sort of divine force some sort of power that God brings to heal and produce wealth and bring success and influence what's going on around you. Therefore, you can speak something, and with your words, you can almost act like God and create the reality you want to see happen. That's not what he's teaching here. And be clear on that, my friends. He is not teaching that in this text of Scripture. And if that's what you're hearing him say, please hear me correct that. The Lord provides what we ask for, he gives what we seek, and he opens the door for our knocking as we are doing and as we are seeking his will. In other words, the promise of answered prayer is built upon an assumption here in this text of Scripture. It may not be explicitly clear to you when you first read it, but if you keep reading Scripture, it becomes clear that 
those who are seeking the Lord in prayer, they're going to come to God with a surrendered and a humble attitude. We are not God telling Him what to do. We are His creatures who are seeking Him for help and His divine assistance. And so we come humbly. We come with a heart that is yielded to God and yielded to His authority, which is absolute. The Apostle John puts it this way in his first epistle, chapter 3. John writes, Whatever we ask, we receive from God because we keep His commandments and we do the things which are pleasing in His sight. You see, our approach in praying to God ought not to be with the goal of having God grant us what we want so that we can spend it on ourselves, so we can make our lives go the way we want them to go and therefore to become self-focused. That's not the idea of what God has in mind here. God will honor the promise to give us what we ask for when we ask according to His revealed will. And so the more we know of Scripture, the more we know of the mind of God and the, and the heartbeat of God and what God is, His agenda, His desires, the more we can then pray in a way that we are in agreement with Him and we're more likely to see His answers to those prayers. Here are very helpful verses. Again, 1 John chapter 5. Verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence which we have before God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we ask from Him. According to His will. John 15, verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you will, it will be done unto you. Abiding in the word means that we are very much focused on communing with the, the thoughts of Scripture, what God has revealed to us about what he wants to see happen in our hearts and in the world. Let me see if an analogy will help make this point a little more clearly. Uh, my wife and I share a joint checking account at Chase Bank. And we have an understanding it was an understanding that was forged in the early years of our marriage, that we're going to cooperate and we're going to work together in how we handle the money that we share in this joint account. She has signature privileges, I have signature privileges. She can use her debit card, I can use a debit card. And if there was a time, and there were a couple of times where we didn't know what the left hand and the right hand was doing, and so you say, well, we can't spend $500 on a purchase here, we only have 250 in the account. And over the years, we've learned how to uh, work that out seamlessly, I must say now. We don't seem to have any problems in that area at all because we are on the same page. We agree with what we are doing and how we're utilizing the resources that God has uh, granted to us as a stewards. Well, if you think of it, in the bank of heaven, God has established a promise account from which every believer may make withdrawals. And in order to write a check on that account, we must be in fellowship with the owner of that account. We need to be on the same page with him. We need to be on the same desire level that he's on. And, and therefore, we worked cooperatively with God. And it's, it's his account, ultimately. And therefore, God will not cash a check for us to spend on our own selfish, sinful ways. We must come surrendered to him. Now, if we're coming to God and we're asking Him and we keep asking Him and we keep knocking and we keep seeking Him and saying, Lord, I want to know the Lord Jesus Christ better. 
It is my heart's desire, Lord, to know the fullness of the Holy Spirit's power working in my life. I dare say if we are longing to see manifested in our lives in a progressively more obvious way the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, I dare say God God is wanting to answer that request affirmatively. He wants to see those things happen in our hearts and lives. And we will receive them if we keep asking, seeking, and knocking. You see, the door will be open to our Father's storehouse. And we will come into possession of those things that are His revealed will for us. Now, I'd just like to summarize my first point with saying this. You can bank on it. You can bank on that. You can have confidence to keep on praying about those things you know to be God's will. It's a good motivation. Second thing I'd like to point out here in our remaining time is point number two. Gospel realities sustain ongoing requests of God. Gospel realities. What are we talking about? Well, if you notice verses 9 to 11, he talks about the example of a man when his son asks for him a loaf, will give him a stone. By the way, a stone in that culture could have appeared as if it looked like a loaf of bread because their loaves of bread are not like our loaves of bread today, uh, shaped in a particular pan-sized shape. But these are uh, mostly flat, and so it's possible that it could have looked like a stone. And, and he's saying, what parent is going to say if the kid's hungry, wants them to eat, they hand them something that looks like food, but it can't be eaten. Nobody does that. I mean, that's just ridiculous. And if there's someone who's hungry and they're saying, you know, I, I, I need something to eat, he says here in verse uh, 10, asking for a fish to eat, and instead he gives them an eel, I think is the proper translation of the word. Not, don't think snake like rattlesnake. Think eel out of the, out of the water. But it was, a, it was a form of food that was not permitted among the Jews to eat. It, it, it was a food that nobody would possibly... So therefore he's saying... What parent is going to, when they hear the child wants some fish, is going to give them a food that is prohibited based on the laws of their devotion to their gods? That's not going to happen either. No parent does that either. So what he's saying here is, that leads him then to logically say, verse 11, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? See, Jesus is using logic here. He's he's trying to reach our minds. Because if our minds understand truth, that's the beginning to see the truth lived out in life. We have to engage our minds and follow his argument here. What he's saying is he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. And I would like to suggest to you that what he's arguing here is based on this example of a parent, human parent who would not do these things, how much more is God not going to do that? He's going to be doing the right things for you. And watch this now. I would like to suggest that perhaps it could be that one of the greatest hindrances to our ongoing, continuous pursuit of God in prayer may be due to our distorted view of what God is really like who he is, his essence and his character. You see, that's why the gospel, I believe, and what Jesus is trying to help speak truth to us in the gospel, is that it instructs us that believers are not praying to some 
disinterested, faraway deity that is totally removed from any connection with the ones praying. He is saying, first of all, that we are praying to a loving, heavenly Father. A loving, heavenly Father. Verse 11. It is God who destroys the long record of transgressions and grants a certificate of adoption to every person who repents and who trusts and believes in the finished work of Christ and his work of atonement, his resurrection from the dead on their behalf, he grants them a certificate of adoption saying, you belong to me, you are in my family, I am your father, I am responsible for you, and I will love you forever, period, as your father. The Holy Spirit is given to us to make sure we have that assurance in our hearts and soul. He's a spirit of adoption. And what happens here is that every adopted child of God has access to their Father in heaven. And the children of God are to do what human children do in the normal parent-child relationship. We're to keep on asking, we're to keep on seeking, and we're to keep on knocking at the door of our Father, letting Him know that we have concerns and needs and requests. And believers, because we enjoy this secure, unfailing love relationship with God through Jesus Christ... When we pray, we know for sure that we are not approaching an indifferent, cruel, drunken, uncaring stepfather who couldn't care less about us. That is not who we're coming to in prayer. It's the exact opposite. As we meditate upon the scriptures and we renew our minds, whatever our experience has been on the human scale, And there are some horrendous human experiences of brokenness in families. I understand that. Some of you may have never even met your human father. I understand that. And so I'm trying to help encourage you to say, do not base how you view God on your human experience. But I would suggest you meditate on Psalm 103 just for a long period of time. Psalm 103. Read through those verses. Listen to what he describes what God is like toward his children. Tender affection toward them beautiful passage and we need to replace our in our minds all thoughts of god being disinterested in us too preoccupied too uncaring whatever it is may be that keeps us from coming to him and keep coming to him you say well yeah one time i had a problem i broke something and i was scared to bring it to my dad that's the exact opposite of what god is like god says when you got brokenness in your life and you've failed and you find yourself in difficulty that's when you need to come to him and he says keep seeking him keep asking keep knocking much more i could say about that but i want to move on to another important insight that i believe jesus is trying to help to give us motivations to keep on seeking and praying is because god is also a generous provider god is a generous provider notice verse 11 he gives What is good? He gives. He gives. He's a generous provider. Some of us, when we read that, we may wonder to ourselves, and I know this is a subtle temptation, but I know it's real among many of us. We may be thinking when we hear of God and his generosity, we say, well, why is it? If Jesus is teaching about prayer in this context, and he says, you know, keep seeking, and God's going to give, why is it that so many people in our world today who are godless, 
who don't care a whit about God, who don't even think about God, much less they ever pray humbly to Him, how is it that they seem to be so well provided for in life? What gives? They're not following this text of Scripture. They never pray to God for help, and yet they enjoy an incredibly, maybe compared to you, an even more incredibly amazing, comfortable lifestyle. They don't seem to lack for anything. By the way, that's not accurate vision. They lack a lot. The richest man in the world lacks a lot. Don't be fooled just because they have money. Anyway, the point is what? How do we make sense of this? I would suggest to you one way to understand this this thought about God and his generous provisions is to say the Bible teaches us that God bestows undeserved gifts to every single person in the world. Everybody. Believers and unbelievers. And we call that kind of giving and the generosity of God in extending gifts to everyone, we call it common grace. Common grace. That includes things like Food, or oxygen, or babies, music, uh, sunshine, rain, life itself. These are blessings that come from God. You say, well, where do you find that in Scripture? Well, look at here, Matthew chapter 7, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, back up a page or two, and Jesus says, 545, your Father who is in heaven caused his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. You see, there there are widespread blessings that go everywhere because God just is generous to give all those free gifts, even though those people do not love him or serve him or even pray to him. But the gifts, I think, that are being described here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, are what I would call redemptive gifts. Redemptive gifts. These good things that are alluded to here in verse 11 of chapter 7 include things that our Heavenly Father bestows. They're not material blessings necessarily. I think what he's talking about here are the spiritual blessings, daily forgiveness, deliverance from the evil one, for peace with God, increased hope and faith and love, the powerful workings of the Holy Spirit within us. And I would even suggest if you look and compare Luke chapter 11, verse 13, he says so much. He repeats the same type of teaching and he adds, and he also gives the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about spiritual blessings. Ephesians 1, 3. We thank God and bless him because of every blessing we receive that comes the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. We are just overflooded with blessings through Christ in the gospel to every true child of God. And so Christians find motivation to keep on praying to a God who is what? He is generous in his provisions to us. If I know that he has sent his only son, he didn't withhold him from me, and he's given him up on the cross to die in my place, to bear the wrath of God so that I might be forgiven, how much more will he give me what I need to make the end of this race of following Christ and end someday fully sanctified, fully glorified? I know for sure that he has. He's for me, he's not against me. Those kinds of things. We can be confident to pray to him as a generous provider. I'll move on to my point number C here. 
As a Christian, we can find motivation to keep on praying because we know that God is all wise. You say, where did you get that out of this text? All wise. I'm using it from the, ver- from the word good. How do you define good when it comes to gifts? You ever given a gift that somebody goes, oh, what is, what is this? Come on, oh, you know I don't like this. You know, I mean, I am the worst gift, gift, gift giver. Uh, I don't give my wife clothes. I mean, I, that was just not a good thing that I've done in the past. And I've learned that lesson, and we have this understanding that I just don't do that. Uh, because I don't even buy decent clothes for myself. So I, it's, it's a problem I have. So the point is, some gifts, how do you define what's good? What's a good gift that we receive from God? And this is where I'm convinced that we need to really dig down deep in this point. This is a critical understanding. If you're, not, if, you're, if you're ready to fight battle and say, I want to keep on praying, I want to be a person that prays, and then I keep praying when times get tough and when, when my, my heart begins to get a little uh, uh, you know, less motivated, I want to keep on seeking God. Well, here's, here's one of the things I think will help us. <clears throat> Romans 11, verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. You cannot plumb the depths of God's wisdom and what he knows. And he is so far beyond where we are as humans. His wisdom is unlimited. And ours is about an inch deep. You see, human parents oftentimes, and I'm one, folks, so I know what I'm talking about here, we are sometimes, we fall short of the wisdom that God displays in his vast unlimited wisdom because we imperfectly perceive the needs of our children, right? So as a parent, we would say, well, um, I have been known as a parent to give to, to my children things that they should not have, Right? Now, I didn't do this, but I mean, I know some parents, they give a television to their kid that gets 400 channels in the privacy of their home, the privacy of their bedroom. Who needs that all night and all the kind of stuff that's on TV to just watch unrestricted and also with gadgets that are technological gadgets that give them unlimited access to anything of the trash that's on the Internet? Those are not good gifts, I would argue. There need to be boundaries set on those kind of things and things that are appropriate for them. Anyway... Other times, sometimes as parents, we give our children what they ask for too readily. Hey, Dad, I'm uh, almost ready to pass my driver's test. You're going to buy me that car, aren't you? Are you kidding me? You can't even hardly operate any car. You want me to give you a car so you can drive that car when you don't really know why you're even operating? I'm not saying it's wrong to give your, your kids a car. I'm just saying sometimes we give our kids things when they're, before they're really ready to handle them. That's all. And many parents, unfortunately, in today's world, they have reacted to all sense of any restrictions that they don't want put on their lives. And so they now are modeling a a pattern of behavior as parents that they spoil their children by granting practically every request that the child makes, only to discover that this kind of parental conditioning over a long period of time results in children who are overindulged, demanding, and lack any sense of gratitude for anything. And so I say to myself, 
That's not the way our Heavenly Father is. He does not operate like that. Thank God. He is all wise. You say, well, what does that mean? I've given you a definition here that I found helpful in the book Knowing God. I think it's in microscopic print in your, in your notes there. Um, it says J.I. Packer offers in his book Knowing God, wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means to attain to that goal. What he's saying is that God, in his wisdom, he is prudent in his perspective. He sees things far more in depth and has wider perspective than we do oftentimes in the moment. We see only in the moment, and we only see about this deep, and God sees the biggest picture of all and understands the depths of what's going on in the heart of his children. And so what does that mean? It means that God often chooses to use, as part of his strategy, delays and detours and difficult people and even denials that he'll put into our life in order to what? To bring about his ultimate good goal to make us more into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, if you can get that concept into your head and into your heart, that is going to radically change the way you pray to God. I'm convinced. For example, if you take the story of Joseph, and I don't have time to go through all the twists and turns of Joseph's story, but what was he up against? Detour. I'm doing what I'm doing. His brothers sell him into slavery. Difficult people. Uh, you got difficult people in your life? Yes, Joseph had a whole bunch of them, brothers sold him into slavery, take him off to a faraway land. His plans are totally off the tracks from what he can tell. Then he's falsely accused in his employment situation. He's doing excellent work. Falsely accused, attempted rape. Ends up in the prison, which must have been a disgusting place reserved for the worst of all human beings in that culture. People break their promises. People forget them denials, delays, you name it. He's dealing with all kinds of things. Finish the story real quickly. Through all those things, he ends up being put into positions of power, authority, and through him, he's able to offer resources to, to provide for the needs of the Israel people so that they might be sustained, including his family. And in that process, he's reconciled to his family. So that when his father dies, he's able to say, at the end of Genesis, chapter 50, those wonderful words, which, again, I challenge you to think and meditate on, his view of God. He says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for, what's the word? Good! I challenge you, define that word. Not on your basis, define it on God's basis. Romans eight twenty eight. all things work together for good. Who says it's good? God does. And Joseph is saying, I've seen God's perspective. In order to bring about this present result, preserve many people alive. I'm convinced that most of us stop praying when we feel like things are not working together for good. Our good. The good that we define is what it should be. Most of us have wasted, and I'm sorry, most of us have wrestled to make sense of the requests which we've made to God that go unanswered. And those are the times where we find like, 
oh, I just can't keep praying about this. I don't sense that anything's happened. Nothing seems to have changed. And so we also were waiting and waiting for God to answer. At those times, it can be so subtle in our hearts to become annoyed with God at his delays and his denials. We become resentful against him. And therefore, we say, I don't want to talk to him. I've got an attitude toward him. It's not easy to admit, but some of us struggle to trust God's wise dealings with us because we've made wrong assumptions about God. We've made wrong assumptions about prayer. For too many of us, we assume that if we follow a certain formula in prayer, like some people say, oh, I'm just going to pray very politely to God. I'm going to use all the right requests and just very nice requests I'll make of God, and surely he will answer and give me what I want. Other people say, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask God for this, but I'm going to, I'm going to come and I'm going to sort of make an offer and bring an offer of saying, I'm going to increase some level of piety in my life. I'm going to do something a little extra here. I'm going to give a little more. Maybe I'll start really tithing. I haven't really tithed, but I'm going to actually start tithing. Or I might actually read my Bible every week, every day this week. And I'm going to, I'm going to say something nice to my mother, which I rarely do. And I'm just going to do the. And then God's going to give me what I want. We bargain with God. May I say to you, prayer is not like that. God is not a magic genie. He is the all-wise God and Father, King over the universe. <laughs> and He knows what's good as He defines it. And therefore, He's not under obligation to respond affirmatively, affirmatively to everything we do, every bargain we throw at Him. And believe it or not, what I've just said about God can provide to us a cr- tremendous blessing to appreciate who God is. If we were to be granted everything automatically when we asked for it from God, what would your life look like? Now, I'm not going to say the name of the movie, but there was a movie years ago with a famous comedian in which he was given somehow, supposedly from God, quote-unquote, these divine abilities to do whatever he wanted. And the point of the movie eventually was it had a lot of sacrilegious things, and there are many things that we could talk about. I don't want to even go into it. The point is, it became clear at the end, I can't deal with that. I can't be God in this world. I can't make things always work for me and other people. It's beyond me. And the point is here, I would say the same. Wouldn't we be under pressure to ask God only for right requests if we got everything we asked for? Wouldn't, who among us would have the wisdom to know exactly what was needed in every life situation? Boy, as a parent, I surely have never known that in every situation. I've cried out to God a million times. I still do for my kids. And so Jesus is reminding us that our Heavenly Father knows exactly what we need. Matthew 6, 8. You ought to circle that one. You ought to underline that. Our Father knows what we need. Not desires, not what we, what we long for or what we think we deserve. He knows what we need. And so therefore, we keep on seeking our Heavenly Father in prayer. And we're confident in His unlimited wisdom. I'd like to add to the quote that's in your notes, another quote. I may, have, I may have covered this recently, but I'm going to add it again. I can't remember when I... From my good Baptist pastor friend, Charles Spurgeon, who is so quotable. But here's what he says about waiting for mercy. Waiting for mercy from God. When God makes us knock at mercy's gate, it's a great blessing, he says. 
When we plead with God, we have not realized success. We've not received what we've hoped for. We become more earnest and more intent, and our hunger increases. If we obtained the blessing when we first asked, we would not have a sense of mercy's value. Standing outside mercy's gate, we grow more passionately, earnest in our pleading. And first we ask, and then we seek, and finally we're pleading with cries and tears and a broken heart. That's the work that God wants to do in our hearts. If we truly understand who He is, that's the kind of response that says, I desire that mercy, and I'm going to plead it for it, I'm going to seek it, and never give up. And then he offers this very helpful comments. Hear me out. If the ships of prayer do not speedily return, you know how a ship leaves? If the ships of prayer do not speedily return, it is because they are heavily loaded with blessings. What's he saying? Unanswered prayers are prayers that you have to wait a long time for? Wow, the blessings come loaded down. And when prayer is not immediately answered, it will be all the sweeter when the answer arrives. Prayer, like fruit, is ripened by hanging longer on the tree. What insight, what helpful comments, what good incentives to say, I'm not just going to pray for a short while, I'm going to keep on seeking God. I'm going to labor before God, seeking Him for His will in my life, aligning myself to Him, asking His will to be done. And therefore, as we request and make these things known to Him, may I suggest you one helpful point here at the end? You say, well, I sure intend to do that, and it seems like I get maybe three or four days where I pray, and then next thing I know, I'm back to my old ways. I've, I've given up praying. I haven't prayed for this unsaved family member in the longest time, and I just have gotten to the point where I don't care anymore, and I, my heart's gotten to a bad place. May I remind you one more thing here? The gospel also reminds us, according to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, that every time we're failing to pray persistently, never lose sight of the fact that Jesus continually is praying for you. He never gives up on you. He never stops interceding on your behalf. Hebrews 7.25, Jesus always lives to make an intercession for his people. And so I say, my friends, because of the gospel, let's keep seeking, keep asking, keep knocking even if it's prayer week or not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you might do a work in our hearts, Lord. Reveal to us in a fresh way, in an accurate way, Lord, our helplessness. And therefore, I pray that you would, in our helplessness, Lord, cause our faith in you to bring us to our knees and to seek you in prayer. I thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is willing to accept those who seek you in prayer, that you give us an audience, Lord. Thank you that because of Jesus Christ, we have one who prays for us in all of our failings and all of our weakness and all of our prayerlessness. And Father, I pray that we might see in us a passion to pursue you in prayer that is unrelentless. That is relentless, I mean. That it continues on, whether we're in good times or, or times of great struggle. 
whether we're finding things to be smooth sailing or whether we're in the serious storms of life, Lord, help us to be seeking hard after you and waiting for you and your wise dealings with us, counting on your generosity of your provision to us, thanking you for your loving, fatherly ways. And so, Father, I pray you would do by your Spirit, work in us hearts that pursue you with undivided earnestness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.